We're going to do a narrated reading tonight, uh, and it's going to come from Joshua chapter 3, and Scott's our narrator, and I'm Joshua, and this is the Lord. I'm the Lord. (laughs) Okay, guys, if you can open up your Bibles and join us, it's quite a long reading. Page 152, Joshua 3, starting from the top. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests who are Levites, carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their, touch feet, and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zethron. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, and one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, 
What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the, of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And, there, and, they, there, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the Ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Methuselah crossed over, armed in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal, on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal and the twelve, the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. No, that's not me. Well, it's fantastic to be here. Sounds good. Am I, am I on? Can everyone hear me? Yep. Well, it's fantastic to be here tonight. Uh, thanks for coming out, even though it's raining, um, and uh, it's even raining through our roof. So please give to the building donations, because uh, we need it. Um, but before we start uh, tonight's sermon, uh, how about I pray? Please pray with me. Lord, we pray now as we turn to your word, we pray that you will remove all distractions from us. Calm our hearts and open our eyes to learn from your word. I pray that the words that I speak will be faithful to your word and I pray that your Holy Spirit will take these words 
and that and drive them deep into the hearts of your people for your glory. In the name of your Son, Amen. Well, I, I want to start this evening by asking a couple of questions. I want to start this evening by asking, firstly, the Christians a couple of questions. And the questions are, do you ever doubt whether Jesus will come back? Do you ever think it's been so long, he's forgotten us, it's been 2,000 years, when's he going to return? Or are you at a point in your Christian walk where you're struggling, where you're struggling to hold on, where you're struggling to hold on to your faith, where you're struggling to actually trust that God will come back? Well, if this is you here tonight, if you're a Christian and you're here tonight and this is what you're going through, uh, hear the words from Joshua. This book will be an encouragement for you. This book gives us hope as Christians. This book gives us assurance as Christians. This book gives us confidence to trust in a God who is a powerful promise keeper. Now, if you're not a, not a Christian here tonight, um, and if, if you're really just quite sick of broken promises, if you're sick of people uh, breaking their promises to you, if you're sick of being let down by the empty promises of this world, if you're sick of being let down by the empty promises of success or money or power, if you're even sick of being let down by the, by the promises that you even make to yourselves, if you are looking for someone to put your trust in, well, the book of Joshua also has something for you. The book of Joshua, we find that there is a God who is trustworthy. We find that there is a God where we have evidence that we can trust him. There is a God who is powerful to keep his promises to his people. And in this God, I pray that you will be confident to put your trust in him. Well, if you've uh, closed your Bibles at this stage, uh, please open them back up to Joshua chapter 3 and 4. It's on uh, page 152. And we're going to look tonight at one thing. And uh, it's on the screen behind me. And it's the one thing I'd like you to leave with tonight from this passage. And that is, God is the powerful promise keeper. That is, God is the powerful promise keeper. So if you walk away with nothing else from tonight, please walk away knowing this. Now, in this passage, God makes three promises to the people of Israel and Joshua. Um, have, a look at me, have a look with me at these promises. In uh, chapter 3, verse 7, we see the first promise, and that's a promise made to Joshua. And God says to Joshua, I will exalt you in the eyes of Israel. I will install you as a prophet and as a leader of God's people. And then we see, secondly, in, uh, we see that God keeps this promise in chapter 4, verse 14. Glance over with me there, where we see that God exalts Joshua in the sight of the people, where they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they stood in awe of Moses. So God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. We see God do this again in chapter 3, verse 10, where God promises to drive out the nations from the land in which they're entering. Now, it's not fulfilled in this passage here, but in the passages to follow, as you come up next week and the week after next, you will see God driving out the nations. You'll see God 
breaking down the walls of Jericho as the people walk around it seven days. You will see God just acting and driving out people from the nations. And God is keeping his promises. And the third promise that God makes to the people of Israel is in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, where God promises to stop the Jordan River so that they can cross on dry land. And we see in chapter 3, verse 16, God demonstrates his power by stopping the flooding Jordan River so the people can cross on dry land. God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. In the book of Joshua, we see that nothing prevents God from keeping his promises. Nothing can stand in God's way. No river, no ruler, no army, no nation. Nothing prevents God from keeping his promises. God is a powerful promise keeper. And the writer of the book of Joshua doesn't want us to miss this. The writer of the book wants us to grab this idea that God is powerful. Um, Cast your eyes with me to chapter 4, verse 24, right at the end of what we read. Um, And we see here that the writer says, he did, that is God did, these things, and those things are stopping the River Jordan and parting the Red Sea and the things he's just talked about previously. He did these things so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. He is wanting to show all people, God is wanting to show you and me that his hand is powerful. He's wanting to remind us that there is nothing outside of God's control. There is nothing that he can't make happen. There is nothing that will stop him or prevent him from keeping his promises. Our God is a powerful promise keeper. And this is why uh, we can return to our key verse in Joshua that Paul has reminded us about each week. This is why the writer of Joshua in chapter uh, chapter 21, verse 45, can say these things. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. But do you know what's mind-blowing about this passage? Do you know what's mind-blowing about this passage right here? It's that God is fulfilling another promise. There's another promise in the background, and that's a promise that God had made 500 years earlier to a bloke called Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, we hear that God makes a promise that he will give the land of Canaan, the land that the people are about to enter enter into, he will give that to Abraham. And so the people are entering into this fulfillment. The crossing of the Jordan is the start of God fulfilling this 500-year-old prophecy. And if you know your Bibles well, as I'm sure many of you do, you will know what God has done to bring the people to this point. You will know that he opened the womb of Sarah when she was 90 years old so she could have Isaac. You will know that God humiliated Pharaoh by the plagues. You will know that God parted the Red Sea so the people could cross through out of the uh, chasing army, the chasing Egyptian army. You will know that God wiped out the sea and wiped out the most powerful army in the world of that time. You will know that God fed every day by quail and manna and provided water to two million people as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. Nothing stood in God's way. 
there was nothing that prevented God from keeping his promise. God again proves himself to be a powerful promise keeper. Now, I was thinking about this this week and, and I, was, I, was, I was wishing um, that like the politicians that we had or I was wishing that the friends that I had were like this, but it, it actually got me thinking. I wish I was like this. The amount of times that I've broken a promise to myself where I've said, I'm never going to do that again and I end up doing it again. I wish I could even keep promises to myself. But this shows the difference between us and God, doesn't it? This shows a massive difference between us and God. We can't even keep promises to ourselves. But God is there making massive promises to his people and he has the power to keep them. Well, the great thing about God is he continues to make promises throughout, it, throughout the whole Bible. Um, we're going to jump back later than Genesis 12. We're going to jump back all the way to Genesis 3 where God makes a promise to you and me. God makes a promise to you and me that he will come into this world and that he will fix the brokenness in this world, that he will get rid of pain and suffering, that he will actually recreate the world how it was meant to be. He will remove from the world the brokenness, the corruption and the abusiveness in which we live. God has promised a place free of stress, free of pain, free of broken relationships, free of sickness and free of death. This is a massive promise from God and he has promised that you and I will enter into his eternal rest. Now, we know the story. Way back in in the Old Testament, God continually makes promises about this Savior, this one who will come and bring us into this promised land. And God promises that he will be born in a place called Bethlehem. God promises that he will be born to a virgin. God promises that he will be born in the line of King David. God promises that he will be rejected by men. God promises that he will be beaten and mocked. God promises that his beard will be plucked out. And God promises that he will be crucified even before crucifixion existed. God made all these promises back in the Old Testament about Jesus. And as history records, God kept every single one of these promises. There was nothing outside God's control. But God didn't stop here. God, when he was on earth, continued to make promises, outrageous promises. He continued to make promises to show that he was powerful and to show that he was a promise keeper. He promised, he promised that Judas would betray him. He promised that he would be arrested by the high priest. He promised that Peter would betray him three times before the rooster crowed. He promised that he would be crucified. And then he promised that three days he will rise again. These are crazy promises. Imagine someone getting up in front of you today and making these promises. In three days, I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to come back. In three days. Either Jesus was the most deluded, arrogant, egotistical individual that ever lived, or he was so sure that he had the power to do what he had promised. And you know what, friends? His resurrection from the dead proved that he had the power to overcome evil. It proved that he had the power to overcome death. It proved 
that he had the power to keep his promise of bringing you and me into his eternal rest. Jesus proved himself as the powerful promise keeper. Now the question we have to ask ourselves tonight in light of this is how do we respond? What is our response to this powerful promise keeper? And uh, for a little bit of help, um, I've brought in, whoops, he's probably already up there. I've brought in my little nephew. Um, this is Charlie. He's just under two years old. Um, and uh, he has a problem. Um, Charlie can't say thank you properly. Um, but what Charlie does say, and he says it very well and say it very often, is ta. It's a T-A long R. Um, and so Charlie is how we're going to remember how we respond to God, the promise keeper. And we're able to respond by saying, Ta, the response to the powerful promise keeper is where to trust him, where to admire him, where to be in awe of him, where to be in amazement of him, where to pledge our allegiance to him, and where to remember him. So our response to the promise keeper is we say, Ta, like Charlie. Uh, he's well in bed now, so he couldn't make it out tonight. Uh, my apologies. Um, so our first response is that we are to trust God. We are to trust this powerful promise keeper. Now look with me at chapter 3, uh, verse 8. And this is the part where God tells the priests to go down and stand in the flooding river. Let, let me just read it to you and so you can feel the full impact of this. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters... Go and stand in the river. Now, put yourself in the, in the priest's sandals here at the moment. Put yourself in their sandals. You've got the river. It's flooding. The current is rushing by. You can just see debris going all along. It's flying past you. And God says, I want you to walk out into that, and I promise I will stop it. Well, if I was a priest, I'd be calling in sick. I'd be taking the day off. There's no way that I'm going to be walking out into that river dressed in my nice priestly robes and get everything wet. But the priests don't do that. The priests walk out into the river. They trust that God will stop the water. And we see as soon as their feet struck the water, God dried up the water. God stopped the river flowing. God had the power to keep his promise. And as Christians... We're called to do the same thing. We're called to trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to get us into God's promised rest. We're called to trust. That's all we're called to do. We're called to do nothing but trust. Well, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? It sounds so simple. Just trust in Jesus. But as you and I both know, friends, it's so difficult. It's so difficult just to trust. If you're, if you're like me, sometimes doubts start to creep in. Sometimes you start to wonder, is Jesus going to come back? Can I trust that he will return? Will heaven be better than what I have here now? Is Jesus' death enough for me to enter his rest? Or do I actually have to do something more to earn it? Or if you're getting... If you're finding work hard, is it actually worth it to put up with the abuse and the neglect that I suffer then? 
Well, if this is where you are today, friends, if this is where you are, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you from the book of Joshua. I want to encourage you that here in God's word, we have a God who has proven himself to be a powerful promise keeper. Nothing can stand in his way. Nothing will prevent him from keeping his promises. The evidence points to him being a powerful promise keeper. The evidence points to him being trustworthy. Now, I know that others of you might be here tonight and you might be struggling to trust God because you feel that he's let you down in the past. Now, I totally get this. When I was a new Christian um, about six years ago, um, I remember really struggling to trust God. I remember when I became a Christian, I naively thought that God would make everything rosy. I mean, I thought that God would make life easy. I thought he would give me a fun life. I thought he'd give me a happy life. I thought God would protect me from all the difficult things that life throws at me. But to be honest with you, the opposite happened. The opposite happened. I don't know if you've experienced this, but the opposite happened. And life got harder. My friends left me. People deserted me. Life got so much harder. And I remember in those times, I remember just crying out to God. I remember saying, God, where are you? Why have you done this? What have you done? I've, come, I've become a Christian. You should be doing all these good things for me. But I, I was so wrong. I was so wrong at this point. I had a superficial understanding of God's promises. I was misguided in what I thought God's promises were. And the irony of the whole situation was that during these times of trial, during these difficult times, God actually was keeping his promises. God was refining me like gold through fire. He was melting me down to make him more like himself, just as his word promises. Now, I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure if you do struggle to trust God because you feel that he's let you down. I'm not sure if you struggle to trust God because he's failed to heal you of, of a disease or of an illness that you have. Or I'm not sure if you struggle to trust God to make you happy. Or if you struggle to trust God because he has failed to make you rich. Or if you struggle to trust God because he's failed to find you a spouse after you've returned to him and said, Jesus, I, I want to come back to you. Or if you struggle to trust God because he has failed to make married life easier and better than the single one. Or, I'm not sure about you, but if you struggle to trust God because he has failed to make temptations easier or remove them completely from your life. I'm not sure where you are. I'm not sure what your struggles are with God. But what I want to do and what the book of Joshua is wanting to do is it, it wants to encourage us that in God we have someone that we can trust in. God doesn't promise to make our lives happier. God doesn't promise to make our lives easier. God doesn't promise to make our lives more comfortable. He actually promises the opposite to these things. But God does promise that he will help us through the difficult times. God does promise that he will never leave us. God does promise that he will not put us through more than we can bear. He has promised to hold on to us. He has promised to refine us through fire. He has promised that he is enough. He has promised that we will get new bodies in heaven. He has promised 
that he will bring us into his rest where one day there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. And God throughout the whole Bible has proven himself to be the only person capable of keeping his promises. This is why I love the book of Joshua. This is why I love the whole Bible because it it doesn't sugarcoat life. It doesn't lie to you. It tells it how it is. It says life is going to be hard. Life is going to get tough. You are going to struggle. But I promise I will be there with you. I promise that I will be faithful. And in God, we have a God who we can put our trust in. In God, we have a rock that we can build our life on. And for me, friends, this is so encouraging. This is so encouraging. It gives me assurance. It gives me hope. It gives me confidence. It gives me comfort. For me, this gives me strength to keep trusting in this promise-making God. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you're here tonight and you've been let down by the, by the broken, there ain't it, by the broken promises of this world, if you've been let down by the empty promises of this world, in the books of the Bible, here we have a God who time and time again proves himself to be a promise-keeping God. He will not betray you. He will not leave you. He will continually keep his promise to you. And the biggest promise that he's made to us is that if you turn to him, if you put your trust in him, if you ask him for forgiveness, he will forgive you and he will bring you into his perfect land of rest. Well, this leads me to our second response. And this is uh, awe, amazement, um, awe, amazement, admiration and allegiance. Um, And now glance with me at uh, Joshua chapter 4, verse 24b. So again, right at the very end of our reading. Um, And you'll see what God says here about himself. Now the writer says, he did this, and that is, he did all these powerful works. He stopped the, the Jordan from flowing. He did this so that you might always fear or in other translations, admire the Lord your God. Now, fear, as you know, has a number of meanings. Uh, Its most common meaning is being scared or being afraid or being frightened. Um, But this is not the meaning that the writer has intended here. Um, Fear also has another meaning of being in awe, being overcome, being amazed, uh, admiring someone for what they've done. Now, given that the Queen has given us a day off tomorrow to, uh, to uh, celebrate her birthday, I thought it would be only fitting that I use her in an analogy uh, for my sermon. And uh, it's this fear, this idea that he's trying to pitch up is as if you were going to meet the Queen tomorrow to celebrate her birthday. You were going to Buckingham Palace and you were walking through and you see all the guards and you see everyone dressed up and then... As you come into the queen's presence, you're not afraid by her. She's not going to touch you up. She's not going to beat you around the the head. You're not scared of her for doing that. But you're actually, there's an element of fear there. You're in awe of her. As you see her sitting up there on her throne with the crown on her head, with the people surrounding her doing whatever she wants, there is this element of awe 
There's this element of admiration. There's this element of amazement that overcomes it. And that's what the writer here is trying to grasp. That's what the writer here is trying to lead us to. And this is why God demonstrates his power. God wants us to look at him as if we would look at the queen. This is why God stopped the river. This is why God parted the Red Sea. This is why God rose from the dead. It's so that we would stand back and we would be in awe of him. We would be in awe of his power. We would admire his power. We would be so happy to throw ourselves before him and give him our undivided allegiance because we recognize that he is more powerful than we are. He is powerful to keep his promises when we are not. So this leads me to my last and final uh, uh, response, um, and that is we are to remember this powerful promise keeper. Have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 20, um, and you'll see, and this is what it says. And Joshua set up at Gilgal tw- the 12 stones they had taken out of the river Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan. <clears throat> now the stones are a memorial. The stones are there set as a memorial to remind the people of Israel that God is a powerful promise keeper. Now, uh, I come from Canberra, um, so please don't hold that against me. Um, I've heard at this uh, church there's been a long line of student ministers from Canberra, and I'm just continuing that. But in Canberra, um, they've designed the city in such a way that the front doors of Parliament House line up perfectly with the front doors of the War Memorial across the lake. And there's a reason they've done this. And the reason they've done that is because when the politicians come out and face the media on the steps of Parliament House, and when they say, we're about to go to war, they can look up and they can see the war memorial and they see a reminder about the terror of war, the impact of war, the pain of war, the loss of war, the suffering of war. And it makes them think twice about committing Australian troops to war. In the same way, these stones are a reminder to the people of Israel that God is a powerful promise keeper. Well, you may be sitting here tonight and you might be asking, well, what, what are our memorials? What are our stones? What have we got to look at to remind us about this powerful promise keeper? And our first memorial is actually not a memorial at all. That's the great thing about it. We don't have a Mecca. Uh, We don't have a whaling war. We don't have a Ganges River. We don't have a big golden Buddha. We have an empty tomb. We have a place that we can go physically and stick our head into and go, he's not here. He kept his promise. He had the power to keep his promise. That's what we have as our first reminder. But if you're like me and you're probably not going to get over to Israel anytime soon, a couple of practical uh, tips for you to help us as we remind what God, as we remember what God has done for us. 
And the good news is that you're all doing it tonight. Our first memorial, our first stone, is, is to turn up to church. Here we are being reminded that God is a powerful promise keeper. Each week we're reminded that God is a powerful promise keeper. Each week one of the people here, whether it's Ed, whether it's Paul, whether it's one of the other ministers, gets up and reminds us that Jesus has done everything for us, that Jesus has risen, that Jesus will bring us into that promised land of rest. But we do other things at church too. In the five o'clock service we had communion where we were reminded that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for you and for me so that we can enter God's promised rest. We also sing songs and we pray to this powerful promise keeper, thanking him for what he has done. But I think that the coolest and most practical uh, memorial that we have is actually God's word. We have it right here, written down. And as I was studying this this week, um, it struck me that God is so confident that he will keep his promises that he actually had the guts to write them all down so we can check it out. So we can sit down and we can go through the Bible and we can go, God made this promise, did he fulfill it? Oh, yes, he did. God made this promise, did he fulfill it? Yes, he did. And basically that's what we've done tonight. That's what we've done. And in the Bible, we have all of God's promises written down for us. We have all of his promises so we can turn there and be confident that he kept his promises in the past and we can be confident that he will keep his promises in the future. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but for me, this is comforting. For me, I find this encouraging. For me, I am confident to put my trust in this powerful promise keeper. He may not keep his promises how or when we want. Israel waited 500 years to enter their land of rest. We've currently been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. But this passage reminds us that God is a powerful promise keeper, that God will uh, keep his promises, that nothing can stand in God's way. And from this foundation, friends, we can step out into the world in confidence. We can step out knowing that he will keep his promises, he will keep every promise that he has made to us, including his greatest promise of his promised land of rest. Let me leave you tonight with the key verse of Joshua. And it's found in chapter 21, verse 45, where Joshua says these words, Not one of the Lord's good promises failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Please pray with me as we pray to this promise-keeping God. Lord, we thank you that throughout all the pages of the Bible, you have been a promise-keeping God. We thank you, Lord, that you have the power to keep your promises. We thank you, Lord, that you make promises. And we thank you, Lord, that we can look confidently to, confidently to you and know that you will keep your prom promises of our future rest. We thank you for these things. In your name, amen.